Online disinformation is an ongoing challenge for social media companies. It was again an issue in the lead-up to this year's election in the United States and remains a problem post-election as President Trump continues to dispute the election results on social media. Social media platforms use labels to highlight misleading content across the platforms, but is that enough? Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, Ariel Bogle speaks to Dr. Kate Starbird, Associate Professor at the University of Washington and researcher at the Election Integrity Partnership. They discuss the growing challenges for social media companies in moderating disinformation and misinformation online. Well, thanks for joining us, Kate. And I know a very busy time of year in general in the United States, but also, of course, due to recent events. I wanted to start with the election integrity partnership that you're a part of. I wonder if you could walk us through what that is and your role in it. Yeah, the Election Integrity Partnership is a collaboration across four organizations, including the Stanford Internet Observatory, the UW Center for an Informed Public, which I'm involved with, and then the Graphica and the DFR Lab. So four organizations that are working together and have been working since late summer to track misinformation and disinformation and other threats to election integrity in real time and try to do really rapid analyses, uh, debunking, and also showing how certain kinds of false narratives about especially about voting, um, were spreading online and offline over the last few months. So it seems a somewhat unprecedented kind of collaboration, uh, even taking on some of the roles that some might think governments should take on in these kinds of scenarios. I mean, how did you think about what purpose the EIB was going to serve during the election and were you surprised by how much it was needed in the end? To answer the last question, I think you're always surprised by impact because a lot of what you do in academia, especially, um, you're never sure what kind of impact you're going to have. I think this project in particular had some pretty good foundations, Alex Samos and others at the at, at the Stanford group that initiated the collaboration. They had partnerships in place, including with government organizations, with journalists and others, other civil society partners, where we had set up um, two-way communication where they could give tips and then, and we could also give the results to our of our analyses, and we usually publish them pretty broadly. Um, and as well as platforms, we had connections with the platforms as well um, to be able to say, "Hey, look, this thing is going viral. It's false, and it's possibly potentially harmful." And so, I think having those collaborations in place, and we had to set them up really quickly because the project sort of comes into being during August. It didn't have a lot of runway, um, and and the folks at Stanford were able to set up these great partnerships and connections, and and which laid the foundations for the impact that we later had. Uh, as as it became obvious that some of the things we were worried about were coming to fruition and, and that the kinds of analyses we were doing were, were relevant to discourse about the election uh, nationally and internationally. And what were those things you were worried about? I wonder if you could maybe step us through some of those specific narratives that developed you know, as the votes were still being counted and now in the weeks since. You know, we looked at a couple different kinds of, of threats to election integrity, including misinformation that would confuse people about when and where to vote and suppress votes. But one of the things we were worried about all along was this sort of efforts to delegitimize the, the process, to make you know claims of massive voter fraud that, that were unfounded and, and not true. And we could see that developing already in, in the at the end of the summer, actually into early summer, you could already see that claims that it's that it was, the election would be rigged and those kinds of things. And so we saw the, the foundations of what became a, a long-term disinformation campaign to sort of sow distrust in the process, originally around mail-in ballots, but then later around voting machines. And af- after the election, a lot of these, these, these things began, the, the, the audiences had already been primed to believe that voter fraud was happening. And then all of this, you know, information that was shared on election day became assembled into these these narratives about voter fraud and then began to take root on a large portion of the population who are you know have been primed for those messages yeah i want to return to that question about how people were primed but i think too people will be curious to know how the platforms the major platforms if we just take facebook twitter youtube how they prepared for the election and how they managed it i mean i wonder if you'd give them you know, a passing grade or a fail at this stage? It's it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to say pass, fail, or they did good or they didn't do well enough. They they tried. They were certainly uh, making changes. They were certainly trying to address the problems. I think they had prepared very well for the issues we saw in 2016 around foreign campaigns and inauthentic actors. 
In 2020, what we saw in the U.S. wasn't it wasn't foreign and it wasn't inauthentic. It was mis and disinformation coming from authentic and many times, in many cases, verified accounts of political leaders, media outlets, and others who had very large audiences. And so it was a very different problem than the one they prepared for. We certainly saw them updating their policies. Um, we saw them innovating on their policies, and we saw them taking action with labels and, and limiting the, the spread of, of different kinds of content in ways that we haven't seen in the past. And we saw their policies being applied to everyone across the board, including world leaders and political leaders, including Donald Trump himself, um, in ways that we hadn't seen in the past that we've only begun to see since COVID-19 actually um, kind of changed the platform's reactions to certain kind of, uh, of harmful information. But um, so I would say like, we're gonna spend a long time digesting what just happened and what could have been done better, but um, it was encouraging to see a lot of platforms begin to take action and they could never do enough uh, because of, you know of what's going on, certainly we're going to have to think about what could be done better in the future. But certainly the outcome of that campaign was probably very successful. If if their goal really was just to undermine trust in the results, and and I think that's bad for democracy. I think the platforms understand that. I think they'll be, you know, thinking about what they could do better. Um, you know, every, every day between now and the next election, right? I want to talk about labels for a second because I think that you know, at least for the users of these platforms, that might be, might have been the most um, obvious visual change to how information was consumed. So obviously Twitter put uh, like a, a label that said this view is disputed or, you know, this claim about election fraud is disputed on tweets and on the president's tweets you know, up to that point. Uh, Facebook also had some form of labelling and then YouTube put labels on some content. I just wonder what you think of the discrepancies there. All have labels, but all applied them in various states of visually being visually obvious and on different types of content. Yeah. So even when you look at the policy level, there's some differences across, you know, the policies. They updated them and they began to even converge in places. Even when the policies agreed about like even when the policies were almost the same across platforms, the actions that they took based on those policies could be very different even on the same piece of information that was cross-posted across two or more sites. Um, and so we did, that maybe? Uh, I don't have exact, I don't have precise examples, but I do remember cases, especially of like President Trump's tweets um, and, and Facebook posts and Twitter had put a label and taken it out of circulation, whereas Facebook only added a label or vice versa. So there were some cases like that that other folks have pointed out. And certainly YouTube was on some of the same things that were being acted on in some platforms, YouTube wasn't taking action and, and, and and also there's a there's a timing of action. So the platforms early on, it was, you know, in August, it was taking them four hours to apply some of those labels to, to some of the tweets. And then, you know, that time, that time shrank it was one hour, it became 40 minutes, 20 minutes in some cases. So we, we did see some movement on some platforms and some platforms may have just, yeah, violated their policy. They just didn't, hadn't got around to doing anything yet because their processes weren't in place to take action quickly enough. And so I think there's a lot of room for reflection I do think that Twitter and Facebook get a lot of attention. I think Twitter, you know, was in some ways leading the way on, on, on taking action, even though we could, we could talk about where it's not enough. Um, Facebook, I think I'm a little bit more critical of, but appreciative that they're taking action. And I think YouTube deserves a lot of criticism right now. There's a lot more they could be doing. Even when we look at the Twitter data to see like where some piece of, of false information about the election was traveling, if you look at the most cited domains in many of those n false narratives, YouTube often appears. And so it's, it's a resource of many of these um, disinformation campaigns. Yes, absolutely. I do feel like there's a consensus growing that YouTube uh, either didn't have the right types of policies in place or what wasn't even enforcing really its own policies to begin with. I do want to think, ask you though, are we thinking about YouTube in the wrong way? So when I was trying to dig through YouTube and looking at these claims around election fraud, et cetera, I, you often find people that have been live streaming and making these claims and for hours. Uh, so it's both very hard to moderate just because it's video, which is naturally harder to moderate, and it's long and it's live, and it's just more like cable TV than like Facebook. So do we just need to start thinking and talking about YouTube in a different way? You know, um, yes, I, I think there's something to be said here for the fact that it's a different, it's a different challenge. They have a different challenge in terms of moderation. 
Um, it's similar to, to uh, Twitter and Facebook when it when it gets to their video content. They also have similar kind of challenges, or, or even their image content is harder to track and apply labels to than their text content, um, where a lot of the natural language processing tools might be able to flag that. Um, but one of the things that I think all of the platforms could do better, and certainly YouTube, is it doesn't take long to recognize that are, there are certain accounts that are highly engaged with that are the main purveyors of most of the mis and disinformation. There's some edge accounts that get in there and, and join the conversations, but often we see the same accounts over and over again, the same channels on YouTube over and over again. And it doesn't take as much to just to just monitor those channels. Um, and so it, there, I, I think a, a strategy that's that becomes based more on the repeat offenders or the or the accounts and channels that we know are, are propagating this and whether that is you know giving them a, a one-week ban like they did to OANN or you know even after doing that ban it is put them on a list where you're you're monitoring concentrating your moderation on this subset of actors and then and and then that can grow as you recognize others are participating but I think you know going about this is like okay I'm just going to take on all of YouTube at once okay maybe that we can't expect that but they could do a better job. They know who is spreading this misinformation, or they should know, because we could tell them in it. You know, a good analyst could could say, "These are your channels, right?" Now. In fact, we're doing that analysis right now based on all of our tickets. Be like, "These are the channels that we're spreading, um, you know, these false narratives that on YouTube." So, as you mentioned, obviously, obviously, post 2016, a lot of the attention was paid to foreign interference on social platforms in the United States, and arguably, a lot of the platforms were prepared for that, uh, as were. U.S. government institutions prepared for that threat. I wonder if you feel on reflection, and it's not that far from the election, so I don't expect you to have uh, your fully formed uh, PhD thesis on this yet, but in general, were we distracted by the foreign interference, the spectre of foreign interference, and it did, did it mean that we weren't prepared enough for the domestic? I don't think I would, I would frame it necessarily that way. I think the fact that we're not talking a bit right, about it right now means that we did a good job with it. Our, our national security did a good job. The platforms did a good job. And they didn't just do a good job in the last few months. They did a good job over the last few years, making sure those networks couldn't build up audiences to activate during the election. And so I, I don't think that's wasted. I think that's really important. I do think we, it's a time to reflect on the fact that the stuff we're seeing with domestic disinformation, that was there in 2016 as well. It maybe wasn't as 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 prominent, but maybe it was just as prominent. We, we just felt that it was easier to problematize the foreign disinformation, both as, you know, rhetorically, but also at, at the platforms. It's a lot easier to make policies around foreign actors interfering versus domestic political speech. And so I don't think that was a distraction. I do think that that what's happened in, t in 2020 it has helped us reveal this is a this is this is not so easily problematized as a as an outsiders trying to to interfere that that disinformation is actually a domestic problem in the U.S. It's a domestic problem in other places as well, um, and we can't just think about this from a foreign interference kind of perspective. Do we also need to start thinking about it more as uh, in a demand sense? So obviously, a lot of the focus has been on. The infrastructure that delivers disinformation to the population, you know, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, the other platforms, when the disinformation flows, sometimes directly from a senator on Fox News to YouTube to Reddit to Twitter, do we need to start thinking about that people want this information and how, how do we deal with that? It seems like a problem or an institutional problem, but also a social problem. I mean, yeah, there's a reason we're very vulnerable to this. And so, you know, it's it's part of our human or animal nature in some ways uh, of why we're vulnerable to certain kinds of sensational uh, information and misinformation in group, out group stuff. I mean, we're vulnerable, psychologically vulnerable. And there's something about the intersection of the way our technology is currently designed that is resonating with those kinds of vulnerabilities. And, and surely that is part, part of this problem. There's also a relationship between the audience is wanting this this message, this demand, and and the kind of content that's been produced. We can think about the um, Murdoch Empire, Fox News, and how they've created these audiences. They've created the audiences that are just addicted to this kind of information, and we can see that same kind of like relationship with information happening in some of our online environments as well. So, I, I do think of it as a human problem and a cultural problem, but that the culture isn't separate from the technologies and the media messages that have kind of help to create this moment uh, and sort of amplify these vulnerabilities and take advantage of them, to be honest. There, there are entities out in the world that understand how this works and they're trying to manipulate these vulnerabilities for their political power. So speaking of building an audience, I just want to briefly touch on 
some of the other platforms that are out there. I feel like every few years there's some sort of convulsion in the, you might call it like the alt-right or the certain sections of social media and of politics that they when they all declare they're going to a new site because there's censorship on the major platforms on Twitter, for example, and they go to Gab or and now they go to Parler. I mean, how are you and the EIB thinking about those I don't know if you want to call them alternative platforms, but certainly they're much smaller than the major ones. Is it a true exodus? Obviously, those platforms have set themselves up in opposition to moderation of sorts. Um, How should we start to think about them? We don't know yet. I mean, certainly there's a change that happens when you move from the more public platforms into more private spaces. Uh, Certainly you can get away from moderation, but you're also not able to recruit. You're not able to reach the kinds of you know, journalists and others you might have that we see that we see some of these same kinds of accounts that are moving to parlor when they use Twitter, they're trying to get their messages picked up and, and spread across across larger audiences. And so I do see I mean, I see the use of, of parlor and some of these other sites as not like someone moving their whole social media, you know, use and, and strategy over to those platforms, but it'll be co- a complementary platform to others and, and even for, for individuals that are just using it for our own sort of participation and consumption, I can see someone, they'll probably still keep their Facebook account and their Twitter account and their parlor account. They're going to use them for, for different reasons than to satisfy d- different sorts of informational and psychological and social needs, right? I don't see a mass exodus, but it's going to change. It, it will change the nature of the different kinds of conversations that are happening. Certainly it complicates the life of a researcher. That's just one more platform we have to learn how to make sense of, or, or at least kind of understand what's happening there. So we can situate our understanding with this knowledge that there's some pieces that we're not seeing as well that are happening here, or maybe we will see them. Like it's currently pretty visible for, for searching and study, but um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, I don't think we know, you know, and we didn't, no one knew Twitter was going to be the biggest one or Facebook was going to be the biggest one at the time. So, so we don't know exactly how these will play out, but I do see sort of like a long tail of, of use of different sites by different populations, but not that somebody's just going to one. I think people are going to be using multiple social media platforms for different purposes. And as a journalist, some of the time I did want to ask you too, uh, how you feel the media did in this ecosystem, whether the framing was right on a lot of the stories about the disinformation campaigns that flowed after the election or even during the election. And the kind of boom, I suppose, in reporting on these narratives and on disinformation, whether uh, even though even if people are framing it as disinformation, whether just the constant reporting on it um, is building the problem, feeding the problem as well. I, I mean, I've been in the debates about how do you cover QAnon? Uh, are you amplifying it or, or are we helping people understand it? Are we helping people kind of battle it? And there's no like single answer. There was this like, oh, we shouldn't talk about it for years. Well, you know what? Not talking about it for several years didn't stop it. And eventually it kind of explodes onto the scene, um, especially you know after COVID-19. So I- I'm not yet convinced that ignoring them, th- these platforms is the right thing to do. I have, and we have seen the rise. Um, in fact, we've cut, one of my student researchers, my PhD students is working on um, studying journalists on the misinformation beat and the disinformation be, and there's been a rise of these like, really great journalists that are doing just great work to kind of help uh, the rest of us under, understand what's going on. And I think there's been a, an elevation in, in many people's understanding of these phenomena it has been improved because there's been great journalism. In terms of covering the election, I, I don't, I don't I, I'm usually an easy grader, but in this case, I'm not going to be an easy grader. I'm not going to give them an A, um, but certainly I, I think a lot of the, the journalism I saw did a lot better. I mean, if you think about sort of coverage of things in 2016 and then coverage of things in 2020, especially around the voter fraud type false narratives that we were studying so closely, um, the co- you know, there was preemptive co- coverage of what was going to happen. The messaging was often correct. They, you know, they're like, yes, there's some ballots that were found in the trash can, but it was because they were stolen from here and they were given back and the police returned them. And it's not like they were, you know, they, they covered them, uh, especially the local news that I saw. And, and then also, you know, the, the journalists that were trying to cover this in a fair way and not trying to push one of the narratives, I thought God, it really, really well. And I, I know I, I would get pushback from some of my colleagues who might be a little bit more critical, but I thought um, compared to 2016, I think journalism really kind of had learned some lessons, absorbed those lessons. Um, many journalists ha- had learned those lessons and, and really I, I thought there was a, 
a healthier information space because of it for the people that are seeking out professional journalism. Um, and that's, you know, certainly our information space is a lot of other things as well. And so it's hard to create a completely healthy space uh, just by having certain elements improve because we've got some that are still so toxic and not holding themselves to the same standards. Absolutely. Well, I think we could talk about it forever, probably. But um, thank you so much, Kate. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Michael Shoebridge is joined by Rowan Kalik, Double Walkley Award-winning journalist and author, to discuss his recent report for the Centre for Independent Studies titled The Elite Embrace. They discuss how the Chinese party state influences key elites in Australia and around the world, and the 10 talking points to look out for in Beijing's engagement with foreign elites. Well, Rowan Kallick, it is fantastic uh, to talk to you on this ASPE podcast. And the, the reason we're having this conversation is you've released what I think is a concisely expressed, really insightful report. It's called The Elite Embrace. And it is about how the Chinese state, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, engages with foreign elites and how successful that is and why, and has a bit of a guidebook and toolbox to see how this works. So I thought it'd be great uh, to have a, a conversation with you about it. And in a lot of things about China, I thought you started by explaining how China operates as an elitist state. Now we think of it as a 1.4 billion population uh, country and the Chinese government puts a lot of effort into talking about their work on behalf of the Chinese people and understanding the emotions and aspirations of the Chinese people. But it's really an authoritarian um, outfit run by a very small elite at the peak of the Chinese Communist Party. Can you just tell us a bit about that and then what that means for how they engage internationally. Great. Thanks, Michael. It's uh, really good to be here with you and um, with ASPIS listeners. Uh, The the Chinese state has been run for 71 years by the the, um, Chinese Communist Party, now 91 million members. It runs every significant organisation in China and... uh, the population is accountable to the leadership rather than the other way around. The treasure, the, the money also floats up and the uh, accountability is bottom up rather than top down. In return, the party uh, seeks legitimacy from various sources, uh, originally right of conquest and then uh, stability and um, then economic growth. Now it's uh, under Xi, it's seeking legitimacy to an extent by uh, China's becoming great in the world. Mm. And I thought you had a little story in your report, Rowan, that really showed uh, the, uh, the way the elite um, get treated inside China. You had that story of Barack Obama turning up in China and it, it was raining. Um, just to tell us about that. Yes, that's right. When uh, when Obama first arrived as president in Shanghai, he was uh, it was raining, and as he came out of uh, Air Force uh, One, he was holding his own umbrella as he walked down the steps. This caused paroxysms of excitement amongst uh, China's netizens, uh, people who file online, because they'd never seen a Chinese leader hold his own umbrella. So uh, this is this is a kind of example of, of uh, the difference and the veneration uh, that Chinese leaders uh, require. And to an extent, in continuity with imperial China, where uh, uh, people had to avert their eyes from uh, even seeing the emperor when he went he processed to sacrifices and other events through the city of Beijing. Yeah, so um, that idea of so an elite runs China. So when they look at engaging internationally, that is pretty much the same logic, isn't it? Let's engage with foreign elites because they're the people that matter and population views, well, they're not terribly interesting. 
that's right, Michael. So the the masses uh, are viewed as having sentiments. Indeed, they're expected to have feelings, but not thoughts or capacity to be be invited to choose to discriminate. So they obviously can't vote. Instead, they feel. And so we have, for example, uh, Wang Xining, the deputy ambassador in Canberra, talked about uh, Aust- Australia hurting the feelings of the Chinese people. So we, the feelings can be hurt, but they're not called on to to think. So that's that's their masses, and th- there's a sense that overseas, it's natural for senior members of the party to seek counterparts overseas who can, they can work with, they can find as compatible and uh, uh, they can look towards to help fulfilling their global goals. And so who are these elites um, in other countries, like like our own? Like what, what kind of places do they come from? I mean, clearly politics, but where else, what, what kinds of elites are we talking about, Rob? China has uh, had most success internationally through not through what uh, is usually known as soft power through uh, cultural a- attraction and other things people uh, loving say uh, Walt Disney products and uh, rock music they turn to America it's uh, instead weaponizing its economic rise that's the that's the tool that's worked and that's what's working worked to enlist the Belt of Road Initiative partners globally, and what's uh, what's working to enlist individual partners. So, corporations obviously is a is a place to go. Uh, universities uh, a place to go to find partners, and uh, we also see, um, uh, as you say, with, to an extent in, in politics, but uh, even in media and so on. So wherever there are people who can be uh, attracted to what the PRC elite has to offer, they'll offer it. Uh. Mm. One thing I, I thought was really interesting about this thing about soft power or uh, elite influence is um, you contrast with the Soviet Union, which desperately tried to win the hearts and minds of the populations. You know, think about their connections into Latin America or the Soviet satellite states. And certainly it was it got pretty repressive uh, at times uh, with their satellite states. But internationally, there was at least an effort to win over populations. But you've got a great quote in there from a former Mexican ambassador to Beijing. I, I could read it out, but, uh, you know, the Soviets were going after the hearts and minds of the local populations. The Chinese couldn't care less. And I suppose I was fascinated in your report. You talk about the collapse of Chinese soft power in the world over the last uh, two years in particular. How much does that matter to Beijing? It doesn't really matter too much, is my view. They they haven't really sought to exercise that uh, soft power overseas. Um, and uh, instead, what we've seen is the, the reverse. They've seen, um, we've seen the the rise of the so-called wolf warrior uh, diplomats, which uh, comes from the foreign ministry, which was formerly viewed as having lost ground and lost influence within the uh, party state hierarchy, uh, suddenly gaining what the foreign minister Wang Yi urged his his diplomats to uh, inculcate, which is a fighting spirit rather unusual value for diplomats anywhere, and particularly actually for China, which formerly had had a very traditional attitude to diplomacy. That's all changed, of course, and uh, we see uh, uh, considerable aggression amongst uh, Chinese diplomats, the government spoke, the uh, uh, foreign ministry spokesman and so on. This is all aimed at the domestic audience, at uh, uh, the kind of KPIs that work well with the party elite surrounding Xi and it's it's uh, it's succeeding I, I would say so it doesn't matter that in the Pew polling in the Lowy Institute polling we see 
rapid sinking, not just in Australia, of course, but in many countries around the world, of attitudes to China and to Xi Jinping. This isn't really mm. important. Well, maybe not, but it might actually have an impact in the countries where that's happening because this is like, you know, it's sort of uh, the dialogue of the deaf, isn't it? Uh, population views do tend to affect policy more in other political systems. But let's that's get back right. to... It's, it's very hard. If you're not inside a democracy, it's quite hard to see how that works, actually. Yes. Yeah, and I think it's a weakness of, of China's strategy and engagement. You talk in the paper about three core roles uh, that, that foreign elites play for Beijing. Did you want to just briefly say what they are? And then my favourite bit of your paper we'll get onto straight after that, which is um, the talking points that Beijing puts in the mouths of the foreign elites that, that want to work on its behalf. And we'll just go through those because I think it's that, that's the most fascinating and probably practical applied bit of your paper. But what are the three roles that Beijing wants? Those three roles that speak out publicly either positively about China or, if not, critically about the roles of other countries or institutions that are deemed to be unhelpful to the party state, uh, signing up to uh, documents that uh, have been drafted by PRC officials. If you go to a, an international meeting in China, almost inevitably it will end with a communique pre-drafted and you will assume to subscribe to it if you don't stick your hand up and make a real nuisance of yourself and seek to be uh, unnamed, which is very awkward. Uh, and the third one is to repli replicate and amplify these 10, what I list as 10, key talking points uh, in when you're talking in a meeting or you're writing articles. Now, these 10 core talking points, I... I don't play bingo, but uh, these worked for me. I tested them against a couple of articles and interviews of people that I think uh, really do work in Beijing's interests, even if they tell themselves they're actually working in their own country's interests. But uh, you can see it in our national debate. Can you just take us through the 10 core talking points and let me know if, if you too are starting to play Beijing talking point bingo? when you listen to some of the alerts. Yep. Thanks, Michael. Yes. Yeah, uh, number one, if there's a falling out between the PRC and your country, the latter is chiefly to blame. Number two, to criticise the PRC is to be racist or to dog whistle to racists. Number three, PRC and the party cannot and must not be separated out from China uh, and the Chinese people whom the party state has ruled for 71 years. That's an odd thing, actually, because in Australia, we do make a difference between the coalition government and, uh, and the people of Australia, but not in China. Number four, mm. even comparatively mild questioning of party state strategies or leaders or raising concerns Beijing doesn't like is to be branded as vilification. We will we can see this word, and I've got mm. examples of that word being used. Number five, the surge of the, of the PRC, especially economically, is inexorable. And uh, the decline of the United States is also inexorable. Number six is anyone who criticizes the PRC is doing so in part at least and maybe in main because they've fallen under the thrall of Washington rather mm. than they responded to the PRC uh, autonomously. Number seven, Chinese people all align with the party's tightly scripted version of the country's history that dwells on its century of foreign humiliation that it claims to have, been, to have uniquely suffered um, up for the century from the uh, opium war with Britain to the uh, foundation of the People's Republic in 49. Number eight, Taiwan must be viewed as inalienable province of China that's always ruled it, and its return to Chinese sovereignty is inevitable. Number nine, China can only be governed effectively by a firm central autocratic uh, ruler, so democracy, federalism would be disastrous for such a populous country. And uh, lastly, 
in discussion or debate about your country's relationship with the PRC, focus on the former. Don't raise or encourage questioning of the conduct of the party or its leaders. That's my... That, yeah, well, that, I mean, that, they are actually a great uh, assessment tool for, for listening to the China debate, including in Australia, because we hear a lot about, well, you know, the Australian government's only made the decisions it has on foreign investment and foreign interference because it wanted to please Washington, which I find hilarious because who knew what would please Washington during the Trump years? Uh, but it's but it's a live talking point you hear and you hear in the mouths of Australians, not just uh, the foreign ministry. The other huge one is that number 10, and you called this the most important one. If you're discussing or debating your country's relationship with the PRC, focus on your own country. Don't raise or encourage questioning of the conduct of the Chinese Communist Party or its leaders. And how often do we hear people interviewed about China and the China-Australia relationship and they scamper very quickly away from the repression in Hong Kong or the appalling abuses in Xinjiang uh, or China's military expansion, and they rapidly talk about, well, Kevin Rudd offended the Chinese when he made his speech. Julie Bishop upset the Chinese. And, of course, Scott Morrison and Maurice Payne daring to uh, want an inquiry into the COVID vaccine. And in the last uh, minute or so, I thought, Really focusing on that one, the why is Australians talking about an inquiry into how the current global pandemic happened so toxic and radioactive in Beijing and such, such a thing that seems to have resulted in some of the economic coercion we've seen. You talk about this in your paper and you really talk about Z and, and the image around the pandemic he wants to create. Yes, you're right, Michael. Uh... She has had a pretty successful run uh, to date and continues to be successful, I, I, I have to say, certainly in his own terms and in party terms. And everything had been running pretty well and uh, he's restructured the uh, governance of China. He's um, centralised and personalised power, all sorts of things, uh, while maintaining economic growth at a, at a pretty rapid pace. But then the start of this year came COVID and suddenly he found himself uh, under the gun at home. Chinese netizens by the millions were very un unhappy about uh, how the party had handled this, how local officials and how the central government had handled it. And he appeared to kind of disappear from public life for a couple of weeks. But then he found his zeitgeist again through this new narrative, which was he is the people's leader winning the people's war against COVID. And which is uh, wonderfully evocative in Chinese history, isn't it? A, a people's it is. war. And while the capitalist nations have been flailing around and failing at the same task. So where COVID came from, remains uh, an unknown mystery. It, it uh, first clobbered China, is, is this narrative, uh, and we succeeded in grappling it down on behalf of the nation. And that narrative, he has to stick to this now. And anyone who tries to uh, lever it apart or raise questions or risks disentangling this and going back to the uh, that terrible month that started the year for Xi and he is determined not to let that happen because since then it's been success all the way, subjugating Hong Kong and uh, moving on and uh, Taiwan in his sights and so on. Mm, so it's a bit like uh, people wanting an inquiry into the origins of the pandemic, uh, forcing people to look in the rear vision mirror. And Z doesn't want that. He just wants them looking out the front windscreen. No, because there are mistakes made by the party palpably. So uh, at the start, at, at, at least, that uh, he does not want to be put back into the open and uh, potentially could corrode that uh, marvellous narrative that he set up.
Well, it really opens that thing about is China's one-party system the triumph that we tell it, that he tells us it is because the very nature of that authoritarian system is the reason I think that the, no one knew about this new virus for that critical early period, and it lost all of us uh, some time in containing it. But uh, we're out of time, Rowan. So let me congratulate you on your report, the Elite Embrace. And I'd encourage anyone who's listening to this to get hold of the report and use those 10 core talking points uh, that Beijing likes to put in the mouths of foreign elites to play your own Beijing narrative bingo. Thanks, Thanks Michael. Uh, and listeners can pick it up at the uh, website of the Centre for Independent Studies, uh, CIS. Thanks. Australia's National Archives recently announced significant plans to digitise data including over 650,000 Second World War service records and over 30,000 at-risk audiovisual records. Anne Lyons speaks to David Fricker, Director General of the National Archives of Australia, about the importance of reliable data and why human rights are central in the conversation around data access. Thanks for coming and having a chat, David. I was hoping we could talk about critical infrastructure and data and information in relation to my report that I did for ASPE on national identity data, particularly with the recent proposed expansion of the critical infrastructure legislation, but also uh, with some recent announcements by the National Archives, um, particularly around preservation and digitisation. Um, I thought it was really timely to, to look at this. So. I was just going to sort of ask you in the first instance, you know, what are some of the major issues that archives nationally and internationally are facing, particularly in this data information as an asset sort of area? Yeah, thanks, Anne. It's nice to be with you again. It's, um, look, it is, it is very uh, timely that we are having a national discussion about critical infrastructure. And from the National Archives' point of view, to recognise that government data, government information, is critical infrastructure. It's the infrastructure upon which the whole business of government is conducted. It's our whole democracy as we understand it, rule of law, uh, trust in, in public institutions is all founded on the reliability of, of the information at our fingertips. And every day, you know, in the news again today, we're dealing with information warfare at some level, you know, whether it's um, misinformation, disinformation, etc. And so for us at the archives, it really is saying, well, if information is universally recognised as critical infrastructure, well, how good is it? And so for us at the archives, our principal objective at the moment is to ensure that the public can trust in the public record mm. so that the, the information, the data and, and the records uh, of government are being produced, are being kept and are being preserved and ultimately made available in a way that is you know, comprehensive, authentic uh, and, and trustworthy. You know, it's a foundation upon which human rights and democracy can be um, carried out. And is that something that's reflected internationally as well or, or in relation to data as, or, and information as, as assets and critical infrastructure? Certainly, certainly across the international community, um, there's, a, there's a heavy focus right now on what's going to happen if AI is more generally adopted by governments for the formulation of policy, first of all, and mm. the delivery of services. The more and more of that which is automated by machine learning uh, means that machines are learning from the underlying data. Mm. And if, if that data does not properly represent the population, if, if marginalised parts of the community are left out of that data collection, if other, other areas are overrepresented, mm. then of course policy will be skewed and the delivery of service will be similarly skewed with, with you know, terrible consequences. So that is a very hot topic amongst uh, institutions like mine around the world, archival institutions. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of focus on human rights as well. There's a, a growing recognition of the importance of human rights and the necessity for evidence to mm. prove human rights, to allow any individual to have a, a universal right of access to government data in order to prove and, and realise their human rights. And so they, these are very, very important uh, developments going on around the world. Of course, it's driven by not only uh, major social movements like Black Lives Matter or Occupy or, or you know, many um, other movements, but also by the rapid pace of technology and just the, the changing nature of 
geopolitics, I guess. And uh, as I said earlier, the rise of, of disinformation as a, you know, the way information is being weaponized to achieve political outcomes. Yeah, I was, I was thinking too that that digital evidence of who we are. So in my report where, you know, it was about all of our national identity data and information that reflects who we are as a nation. So the evidence, you know, the land titles, births, deaths and marriages, our parliaments, our courts, and even just some of the, the stories that, you know, are on our TVs and on our PCs and on our, on our screens. And I think that it's interesting in relation to critical infrastructure that I'm really pleased that they're looking now at expanding our legislation to hopefully include at least data. I, I think it should be more than that. It should be important information and data should be considered uh, critical infrastructure. But one of my other recommendations was the misalignment between cybersecurity and digital preservation. And I, I was really pleased that the information security manual um, has, you know, was updated and included preserva digital preservation in that. But I suppose from your perspective, that's a real focus for, for, for archives in particular. How do you see those two connecting in your role? Yeah, it's, um, look, and that was a really important part of your report and a really uh, welcome set of recommendations that, that you came forward with. Because I do think, you know, back when you were doing your research and, and up until when you did um, produce your uh, recommendations, cybersecurity really was uh, quite heavily focused on protecting the technology, you know, this sort of fortress idea that the data is inside a box um, or, you know, inside a communications device or something. And therefore, you know, we needed to protect that box or that device or that, um, that length of submarine cable or whatever it was. Um, but when you start thinking about preservation, you think, well, okay, over time, how is the value of that information being preserved? Because it's not just about having a, a fortress mentality protect, to protect hardware. You've actually got to stop the core information from losing its, its value or its meaning or for it to be altered or perverted in some way. Uh, and so that, that's how it is changing. I think that the, the idea of preservation of information is really saying, look, all government data has got a, an intergenerational value. Government data has to survive from one generation of technology to the next and indeed from one generation of Australians to the next for that matter. And so you might, we need to have a much longer view about preservation of information Look, look past the next technology cycle, look across the silos of government bureaucracy and make sure that the value and the meaning and the usefulness of, of that information is preserved you know, across space and over time. I, I'm just interested in that from the, from the new policy that you've just announced as well. Have you incorporated that in, in the policy? Because I'm sort of thinking that there's still an absence of most government agencies, and I think that's both Commonwealth um, and state agencies, to really look at the longevity of the data. Mm. And, and it's really, you know, they sort of look at it as the life of a system or maybe five years max. And, I, and that struggle, how are you going with that? And, and what sort of, what's your sort of thoughts on the future of that? Yeah, look, we, look, we've made some progress. We're just rolling off our previous whole of government policy, Digital Continuity 2020, mm -hmm. which of course you're very familiar with that. Um, and it, as we approach the end of 2020, uh, our next policy is to carry government forward for the next five years and the policy is headline building trust in the public record. Now, where we got with Digital Continuity, we made some advances. So now we have you know, sort of 87%, I think, of agencies are digital by default. So their information is being managed from cradle to grave in a digital format, which is fantastic. There are much stronger information governance regimes established in government agencies at the moment. But where we are still underperforming, where our achievements are lacking, is in the area of interoperability of government information. Mm. So information still being created uh, for a specific purpose and for a specific time. And so data is collected to deliver on a particular policy, or deliver on a particular program, but the long-term value of that data, its, its potential for it to be repurposed, reused, recombined, is still not being recognised in the way the data is being created and kept. Now, at the other end, at one other end of the spectrum of government activity, we have, you know, the Office of the, the National Data Commissioner. We have uh, the head of ABS, the Bureau of Statistics, is now our chief data 
uh, person. So there's a lot of work going on uh, in developing ideas about how data can be reused and what are the ethics of, you know, how do we protect privacy, how do we, you know, maintain freedom of information, etc. Um, but our job is to make sure that when it comes time to use that data, it is actually fit for purpose and ready mm. to be used. And that's what our policy is driving uh, around building trust in the public record is create the data fit for use. If you're purchasing new IT systems, make them fit for purpose, that they are going to create data which will survive this generation of technology. Yeah, I was, I'm, I'm thinking too in relation to whether it's the people side of things too because everyone's very focused on their role and, you know, there is a plethora of as you just identified too, and yourself, um, of people in this space. But I was really pleased. I was contacted by La Trobe University and I, I did a sort of tutorial lecture to their 90 uh, cybersecurity master's students. So a lot of them work in the corporate sector. And it was about that misalignment of digital preservation and security, but also the longevity of information. And it was really good to hear that 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 particular university was starting to look at that and maybe included in their curriculum and they had an exercise of doing a risk assessment on the on the fake scenario that I put together in in my report and I do think sometimes it is about education or how do you influence that from your perspective David well and and for us it, it is about cultural change so I'm obviously focused on the Commonwealth public service yeah. our principal um, clientele if you like our yeah. domain of influence but it is about that cultural change and I, I keep using money as an example that if you know we have all this governance around money now no no public servant carries in his or her head all of the different bits of legislation that controls the use of public money but we all have just got this instinctive understanding that you can't leave money lying around you know if you've got public money you don't just chuck it in the bottom drawer or you don't leave it in your back pocket or you don't just sort of you know leave it in a pile in a shoebox you put it in an account and you know who's got access to that account you know it is there for a particular purpose and it needs to be accounted for but we treat information that way we leave government information in a shared drive or in my you know drive on my pc we leave it attached to an email and it's, that's equivalent to leaving bits of cash lying around the office. But if we think about information in the same way we think about money and we adopt information governance, the same way we adopt other areas of corporate governance, then we start to build a stronger information culture and we start to realise information for its true value as a national asset, as critical infrastructure. Uh, to, to fuel the, the machinery of government. There were some of my other recommendations and I think the critical infrastructure one and, and the digital preservation are sort of two that I think are moving forward. But that cultural change... I think is is a, is a bigger thing, mm. and uh, and also the value of data. I, I don't think there's been a lot um, in that space that's sort of improved, or that th there's been a lot of movement on, on either. But I suppose I'm thinking that who's going to drive this forward if it's not the archives? I mean, how how can we how can we do that? And I think that we're in a space now where um, we need to look to the future. And anything we can do to sort of get things together, and I think that the archives is, is an area to, is an organisation to look for, look to that, and lead in that area. Well, we're certainly investing all our energy in that very outcome. Okay, great. Thanks, David, for coming and having this great chat. Thanks, Anne. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns, and money. See you next week. <laughs>